Well, we are now nearing the end of our uh, summer sermon series called Unlearn and Relearn. And uh, we're trying to get back to this idea that following Jesus is not just about knowing the right things, but it's about an intentional shedding of old habits, mindsets, practices, um, and a relearning of new habits, practices, and mindsets that um, allow us to live the life Jesus intended us to live. And uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, and today, uh, we're in the Gospel of John, and we're looking at one of Jesus' encounters with a man named Nicodemus. And if you're taking notes, uh, we're going to be looking at how following Jesus moves us from a posture of certainty to a posture of curiosity, okay? From certainty to curiosity. And so if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to the Gospel of John, we're going to look at John chapter 3. Verses 1 to 16, uh, you'll see the text on the screen. You'll also, uh, if you can follow along uh, on a phone, uh, we're looking at the NIV. Okay, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. This is the reading of God's word. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Amen. Um, uh, a couple years ago, uh, my younger brother took a 23andMe test, and it's uh, one of those DNA tests, if you haven't heard of that. And um, uh, it, he got it for free, and so I don't think he was expecting anything out of the ordinary. Uh, but he took the test, and he called me up, and he said, uh, bro, uh, it turns out I'm a third Japanese. Um, and I was like, what do you mean you're a third Japanese? I was like, our parents are Korean, our grandparents are Korean. He's like, no, I, I just took this test and it said I'm 32% Japanese. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. Um, and he was like, so, you know, I'm gonna need you, mom and dad, to take this test too so we can figure this out. I was like, no, I'm not taking the test. Um, and he was like, no, like, why? You gotta take the test. And I was like, no, no. You know, I, I think I'm okay not knowing you know, I've lived 30-some years this way, and, uh, 
I don't, I don't know if I want to know. I've been fine. I don't, I don't want to know if I, if I want to know what happened uh, somewhere there. And so uh, I didn't take the test, okay? Uh, I didn't take the test, and, uh, but I still went down the rabbit hole. So that night, I was looking up all these YouTube videos. I called all my biology teacher friends, and I was like, okay, so for my brother to get 30%, you know, like at what point in the family tree does that mean there was like a disturbance in the force there? Um, if he's 30%, does that mean I'm 30%? You know, what does that mean? And they were, they were like, uh, it's, it's really hard to say. Uh, a lot of different things could have happened there. So only way to be sure is for you to take the test yourself. And I was like, I'm not taking the test. And, uh, you know, all my friends to this day are like, just take the test. I'll pay for you to take the test. I want to know. Just take the test. How can you live not knowing? And that question has kind of stayed with me for a while now. How can you live not knowing? And I think it speaks to our culture's obsession with certainty, our culture's obsession with knowing, and our culture's obsession with being right. Okay, now, uh, some of it, I think, is a product of living in the post-Enlightenment era, where you have uh, this emphasis on rational thought, this idea that everything can be understood logically, that things can be proven empirically, um, you know, where everything has, is black and white, there's right or wrong, uh, you know, everything is binary and dualistic. But I think some of it is a product of living in 2021, living in a world that feels like it's falling apart, right? And as human beings, uh, we tend to crave certainty when we're afraid. We're not feeling like we're standing on solid ground. We tend to demand certainty from our leaders and from other people. Well, uh, for me, uh, I would say that, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, in some sense, like, I get that, right? Because uh, I don't know about you, but if I'm sick, uh, I want to be treated by someone who knows what they're doing, who knows what they're talking about. I, I don't want to be treated by someone off the street. Um, but that being said... I feel like we've kind of brought this mindset into the church, and it's really damaged the church, right? This mindset that certainty is a sign of maturity, that the, that the more sure you are in your convictions, the stronger you are in your faith. Uh, I grew up in a church that often used the slogan, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it, right? I don't know if you've seen it. You've probably seen it on a bumper sticker at some point, but uh, Basically, I grew up in a church that said, uh, if you question anything in the Bible, uh, if you have doubts, or if you express confusion, then you were being heretical. I remember sitting with my Sunday school teacher, Miss Hong, and I said, well, Miss Hong, I mean, let's be honest, like a literal seven-day creation story, I mean, come on, I mean, that, how could that have happened? No joke, she dropped everything she was doing. She put her hands on my head, started speaking to me in tongues, um, and said, uh, you know, this person is possessed, and, um, you know, we need to do something about it. They're being influenced by the culture. And, and I think, you know, as, as weird as that story is, in some ways, this is how the church operates. We operate on the basis of our certainty. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Right? And we brought this kind of thinking into the church where we created an environment where there was no room for mystery or doubt, which is why Christians were not equipped to handle a year like 2020, 
when there were these huge philosophical and theological questions where you saw the Bible be weaponized on issues like race, politics, sexuality, and Christians, rather than understand these issues as very nuanced and complex and mysterious, we basically reverted to black and white binary thinking. Yes or no, us versus them, either or, very dualistic. And I think in some ways it's because we idolize certainty. We idolize knowing and we idolize being right. Let me pose a question today. What if certainty isn't a sign of maturity? What if it's actually the enemy of faith? We often think the opposite of faith is doubt. No, the opposite of faith is certainty because we wouldn't need faith if we were certain about God in every way. The opposite of faith is certainty. True spiritual maturity, then, isn't the absence of doubt, but it's the ability to embrace ambiguity, to hold conflicting truths in tension, to say, I don't know either. I wish more leaders would say, I don't know either. But you see, we don't like leaders who don't know. Pastors are paid to be certain. Pastors are paid to know things. Pastors are paid to tell you how to live your life and tell you what to believe. But this is why Jesus pissed everyone off all the time. Because they demanded certainty from him and he never gave it to them. Never gave it to them. Uh, the religious leaders would come up to him and say, Jesus, is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Black and white, it's a yes or no answer. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus would do these Jedi mind tricks where he would say, if one of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit... You know, would you not pull it out and help it up? You know, it's like, just answer the question, Jesus, right? Is yes or no, right? But you see, Jesus never gave in to the kind of entrapment that they demanded from him, the kind of certainty they demanded for him, and it drove people crazy because Jesus was never going to put God in a box. Like if Jesus' goal was for all of us to understand things perfectly, he failed, because nobody ever understood what Jesus was saying. He spoke in parables that were confusing and hard to understand. He would say things, questionable things, and then just walk away. But maybe that was the point. Maybe the point was that his disciples would not understand the truth perfectly, but maybe the point was for his disciples to keep pursuing the truth vigilantly. Let me say that again. Maybe the point was not that his followers would understand the truth perfectly, but maybe the point was that his followers would continue to pursue the truth vigilantly, okay? Now, don't hear me say here that I don't think truth is important because I know we're living in a world uh, marked by moral relativism where, you know, you got your truth and my truth and, you know, everyone's truth and, you know, your truth is valid and my truth is valid. I don't believe that. I believe there is absolute truth. I believe the only source of absolute truth is the Word of God. What I don't believe is that we, a congregation in LA in 2021, has sole possession of that absolute truth. That we, with all of our cultural baggage, all of our privilege, the way we grew up, somehow that our interpretation is the only and authoritative interpretation of the Word of God. And I would say when we start to believe that, we're no different than the religious leaders Jesus was always rebuking. Certainty is just pride repackaged. 
right? Do you know how insulting it is to someone when you presume to know everything there is to know about them? Like when someone comes up to you and says, I know people like you. You care so much about what other people think. This is why you do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, thank you. Um, I don't think that's why I did that, but thank you that you know me better than I know myself, right? Certainty is just pride repackaged. It's putting God or it's putting that person in a box. And yet we do this to God all the time. We presume to know everything there is to know about him, not realizing that when we do that, we're probably further from him than we think, okay? Now, in our text today, we meet a man named Nicodemus. We read that he wasn't just a Pharisee, but he was also a member of the, of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, which was basically like the Supreme Court of the time. So this is a guy that's not just a religious leader. He's a very high-up religious leader, okay? Now, uh, I know that that word Pharisee, like when we read Pharisees uh, in our Bible today, uh, that word comes with so much baggage because Pharisees are always the bad guy in every, you know, Bible story you read. But you have to understand that back then, this is not how people viewed Pharisees. Pharisees were the spiritual leaders of that time. They were the ones you went to when you had questions about God. They were the ones whose podcast you would download if you had questions about God. They were the authoritative like, voice for all things God, for all things uh, understanding what the kingdom of God was and how you gain entrance to it. They were the bastion of certainty, which is why I love that Nicodemus, who is basically the all-star of this group, happens to be the subject of this encounter with Jesus. Now, when you read this passage, Nicodemus does not look like a bastion of certainty. In fact, he seems very uncertain. He seems kind of confused, and he seems very curious. And I want to use this text, and my hope is that as we walk through this encounter, is that we too would learn what it means to move from this posture of certainty to a posture of curiosity. Okay, and Nicodemus is going to show us a few things about what that posture of curiosity looks like. Number one, a posture of curiosity takes risks. Okay, if you notice, the first thing we read is that Nicodemus seeks Jesus out at night. And that's kind of a strange detail for John to mention. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't say why, but most scholars believe the reason he seeks Jesus out at night is because he's scared uh, of what the other Pharisees are going to say. You know, that, you know, knowing that one of their guys, one of their leading guys, actually is going to Jesus. And so he knew that to be associated with Jesus was dangerous for his reputation. So it's a huge risk for him to go there. Now, you could say that, you know, Nicodemus was a coward, but you have to understand that when a person's livelihood is tied up in their certainty, you have to understand why he probably went at night. So even for him to go at all was a huge risk. Uh, John Wimber used to say that faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And it was this idea that if you want to follow Jesus, get prepared to say and do do things uh, that aren't going to make you very popular with people. He said, if you follow Jesus, get ready to associate yourselves with people uh, that other, other religious leaders are going to look at and judge you for, right? He says, faith is spelled R-I-S-K, right? So number one, a posture of curiosity takes risks. Number two, a posture of curiosity never stops asking questions. 
Um, I love the first interaction we see here. Like, Jesus is like the master of never answering your question directly. Um, my wife hates that about me. Um, she'll be like, Jason, what time are you going to be home? And I'll be like, you know, there's like a lot of guys coming out tonight. And she's like, I didn't ask you that. And I was like, what time are you going to be home? Right? Jesus is the master of that. So I can always say I'm like Jesus, okay? Um, Nicodemus says, okay, Rabbi, uh, we know, like, you're doing all these signs and miracles, and so, like, you're from God, right? You're from God, right? Yes or no answer? Jesus says, uh, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's like, what? I, I didn't ask that question, right? Literally did not answer the question. Are you from God or not? And he says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, if I'm Nicodemus and I put myself in this story, at this point, I'm probably going to be like, you know, I'm just going to fake it and act like I understand what he's talking about. So I probably would have been like, mm, yes, the kingdom of God, being born again, right? I mean, I do, I do that with pastors all the time, right? They're like, they're like, Jason, I really feel like we're in a second Chronicles moment in the church. I'm like, mm, yeah, I have no idea what they're talking about, um, you know. And yet Nicodemus, I mean, he's shameless because he asks a second question, and it's a ridiculous question. He, he says, how can someone be born again when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Like, I, like, I love how real the Bible is with these interactions. Jesus says, you have to be born again. Nicodemus, is, Nicodemus says, so you want me to crawl back into my mom's womb? Like, what, a, what does that mean? And Jesus again gives a cryptic answer about being born of water and spirit. And you can tell Nicodemus is still not getting it. And so he asks a third question. How can this be? How can this be? And on one hand, you could say, you know, Jesus was getting annoyed. But on the other, I wonder if this was what Jesus wanted. Because Jesus could have gotten rid of Nicodemus right at the beginning. Jesus could have answered the first question, yes or no, and Nicodemus would have been gone. And yet, there's something about this interaction that makes it feel like maybe Jesus wants Nicodemus to keep prodding, to keep seeking, to keep pursuing, to keep asking. Right now, uh, I would say that we live in a world where everyone wants to make statements and nobody wants to ask questions. Let me say that again. We live in a world right now where everybody wants to make statements and nobody wants to ask questions. Everybody wants the church to make a statement about something. Everybody wants the church to make a statement about divorce, about abortion, about sexuality, but nobody wants to ask questions. Nobody wants to do the hard work of sitting with people who've wrestled with these things, who are struggling with these things, and asking them what their story is like, and yet maybe this is what Jesus wants from his people. If you're here today and you're asking questions, keep asking. This is faith. This is the posture of curiosity that we see here. If you're married, I'm going to give you a pro tip right now, okay? I'm going to, I'm going to teach you how to save your marriage in one step, okay? Um, the next time your spouse says something to you and you're um, tempted to answer with a statement, try asking a question, okay? And I, I can only say this because I'm the worst at this. 
I fail at this all the time. Okay, I have like three statements I pull out of the bag when Carol says something. She'll come home and she says, I hate my job. Statement number one, if I'm in an okay mood is, I told you not to get that job, right? That's, that's, like, that's like level one statement, right? A conversation usually ends there. Um, the, uh, statement number two uh, is, I uh, hate, hate my job. You should be grateful you have a job, okay? Ooh. That, that's like, you know, fight, fight level orange, yellow there. Um, and then if I'm really not in a good mood, uh, she says, I hate my job, just quit. I told you to quit. That's the conversation ender. That's probably like a, a night on the couch. Um, and what she wants in those moments is not answers. She wants questions. That's what she needs. I hate my job. Why do you hate your job? I had this thing with my coworker. What happened with your coworker? Well, a coworker's blaming me for everything. Oh, that sucks. Is there anything management can do about it? Right off the bat, now we have a conversation. Now we have a conversation. You see, answers create distance, questions pull you close. This is the posture of curiosity. Okay? So, married people, remember that. You'll thank me later. You know, no problem, no charge for that one. Okay? So, curiosity takes risks. Curiosity never stops asking questions. And finally, curiosity embraces doubt and uncertainty. If you're like me, reading this passage at first is really frustrating because there's no payoff. Nicodemus asks, Jesus responds cryptically. Nicodemus asks, asks again, Jesus responds cryptically. Nicodemus asks a third time, Jesus responds cryptically, and then Nicodemus never speaks again. It's so frustrating because there's no aha moment. There's no moment where you see like Nicodemus like, oh, now I get it. The conversation just ends. And I think following Jesus can sometimes feel like that. Sometimes the conversation feels unfinished. Sometimes we're more confused than we were when we started, and we don't get all the answers to our questions. And if you've never had doubts about God, and if God has always made perfect sense to you, I would suggest that maybe your God is either too small, or maybe you just haven't lived long enough in this world. Because there is no way you could live in the world that we live in right now and not have at some point doubted God or been uncertain about the way God works. Part of worshiping a God who is otherworldly and transcendent means that doubt and uncertainty come with it. Isaiah 55 said, in, in Isaiah 55, God says, my ways are higher than your ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. We cannot understand this God. It is inevitable. If God is who he claims to be, it will, it will be impossible for us to wrap our minds around him. I love that Jesus' closest disciples were often the ones who never understood anything he was doing. It was always the people closest to him who never doubt, who always doubted and never understood who he was. I feel like the church needs to make room for people to say, Jason, I'm not sure what to do with this. This part of the word I don't understand. We need to make room for people to say, I need help for my cynicism. I need help for the Christian leaders who failed me. I need help for my bad experiences. I'm having a hard time believing that God is good, that God answers prayers, but the church hasn't been that safe space.
And a lot of times we turn those people away as people who are straying or falling away or who have given in to the culture. We need to be okay with not knowing everything. And so my encouragement to all of you who are here today and are experiencing these doubts and experiencing these kinds of emotions, just be honest with them because Jesus can hold your doubts and he can hold your uncertainty. One thing I've realized as I've journeyed through the faith is that the more I learn about God, the less I realize I know about him. It's the great paradox of following Jesus. The more you know, the less you know. Now, one question I had, and you might be asking, is, was Nicodemus here even saved? Like, how do we know that this encounter is a picture of true faith? Well, this conversation ends kind of abruptly, like I mentioned, but this isn't the last time we hear about Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. He comes out again in John 7, and you know what's happening in John 7? The Pharisees are there. They're plotting to kill. They're plotting to arrest and kill Jesus, and someone stands up on Jesus' behalf to defend him. And you know who that person is? Nicodemus. This guy who just a few chapters earlier was too scared of his friends and that's why he had to go sneak out at night now is defending Jesus in front of these same people. We're literally seeing a progression of faith happening in the book of John. And this isn't the last time we see Nicodemus. We saw, also see him in John 19. And in John 19, this is right after Jesus has been crucified, you know who's the one anointing Jesus' body and preparing him for a proper Jewish burial? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. This guy who in John chapter 3 was so confused and so uncertain and was doubting and was asking these questions, at the end of the day, he's the guy burying Jesus after he dies. His curiosity ultimately led him to the cross. You know, my kids are in that stage right now when they're asking a lot of why questions. Why this? Why that? You know, why do you work? And I say, you know, because we got to make money. I say, why do you have to make money? Because we got to feed you. Why do you feed us? Because we love you, right? And when we say because we love you, usually that's when the conversation ends. Because you realize for kids, there's a lot they don't know, but that's all they need. That's all that matters, that their parents love them. There is a lot we will never understand about God. We will not understand exactly how God created this world. We will not understand everything we read in his word. We will not understand why he took a loved one away from us so early. We will not understand why we have to go through what we're going through in this very moment or why God works the way he does. But in the cross of Jesus Christ, there is one thing we will always know, that he loves us and that he loves us so much. You know, what I love about the way John portrays this story is that, again, the conversation just ends at verse 15. And I know the conversation ends because in my Bible, there's no more red letters, okay? I know Jesus has stopped talking. But it's really interesting because it's really frustrating. As, as I'm studying this passage, I'm like, that's it, Jesus? Like, and, and five verses later, it moves on to another story. The conversation just ends with Jesus saying something cryptic, and you're like, you feel like Nicodemus. 
It's like, give me more. I need to know more. And I feel like the Apostle John, as he's writing this, understands the frustration of Nicodemus, and he understands our frustration. And so you know what he gives us? He gives us John 3, 16, the verse that comes right after, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He says, I get it, you're frustrated, and I get it, you don't understand why I do the things I do. I get it, but know this, God loves you so much that he gave his one and only son. This is the love of God, the pursuit of God. Even in our doubt, even in our inability to comprehend, he pursues us by sending his one and only son. If you're here today and you're new to Christianity or you're doubting and you're questioning what you believe, if you're asking why me, if you're asking how could you God or what's next God, I want you to know it's okay. Jesus can hold your doubt and questions and not only does he hold them, he will use them to draw you into a deeper relationship with him. And you know what's even more profound? Even if you stop pursuing Jesus, he will never stop pursuing you. Even if you stop pursuing him, he will never stop pursuing you. One of the most powerful scenes in the New Testament is on the road to Emmaus when you have two disillusioned disciples walking away from Jerusalem because they're downcast, because they're disappointed. The cross was the biggest letdown. Everything they had put their hopes and dreams on failed. They were disillusioned, they were cynical, and they're walking away. And you know what it says? It says, Jesus walked alongside them. As the disciples are walking away, Jesus walked with them. This is an amazing God. There is no God like this. And so this morning, may we come to Jesus with all our questions, all our doubt, all our uncertainty, and may we be comforted knowing that the same way that the wind can't be controlled or understood by human beings, but can be felt and experienced when you look at the swaying trees, that in that same way, though we cannot control or understand God, we can experience and know the depth of his love simply by looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. There is not much that we will ever know, but this we do know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you uh, this morning. We thank you for this reminder that uh, we don't have to have all the, all the answers. I know many of us in our congregation and in our world today are asking why. Why this? Why them? Why me? And sometimes it's so frustrating to live in the grace. Sometimes it's so frustrating to not have these answers to not be certain of the things that we believe. But we're reminded today, not only that you can hold our doubts and uncertainty, but that you welcome them. That you invite us to question and to seek and to pursue, to not know, to fail and to come back. That this is all part of your plan for our lives. This is all part of the way that you draw us into a more intimate relationship with you. 
So I pray for my brothers and sisters here today who are doubting, who are questioning, who are having existential crises uh, about their faith. And I pray that more than anything, not that they would leave here today with more answers, but that they would leave here with one thing, a knowledge that you love them and that you love them deeply, that you love them so much that you gave your one and only son, that that would resonate deep within their souls and that ultimately that would be all that matters. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for showing us in one tangible act the depth of your love for your children. We love you. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.